This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I am Lindsay Gibbs and I will be uh, your director of events for today. (laughs) Joining me, we have the fabulous Dr. Brenda Elsie, professor of history at Hofstra University. How are you doing today, Brenda? Pretty well, pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, drowning and grating still, but I'm good. Drowning and grating, uh-huh. yes. And of course, the optimist herself, Shireen Ahmed in Toronto, Canada. Hi, Shireen. Good morning. <laughs> we have got a phenomenal episode for you all today. We're going to dive into some stuff about Malcolm Gladwell and Charles Barkley and ways powerful people in our society are still getting things wrong when it comes to talking about and writing about violence against women. Kind of an evergreen topic here at Burn It All Down. Speaking of evergreen topics, we're going to talk about everything that's going on with racism in soccer. I know Shireen and Brenda have a lot of updates for us on that front. And as always. And we have a phenomenal interview. There is a lot going on with women's hockey right now. And Shireen talks to Kirsten Whalen to break it all down. Of course, we'll have Badass Women of the Week and the Burn Pile and what's good. But first, I must admit, yesterday I had two Friendsgivings, which is, you know, the mishmash term of when you're just getting together with your friends for thanksgiving like dishes and it's american thanksgiving this week and it is canadian thanksgiving was last month i believe yeah so i thought we would take a second to just talk about what our favorite thanksgiving dishes recognizing that the colonial nature of the holiday is disgusting (laughs) but there is good food. Shireen, I know you love talking about food. What is <laughs> your favorite Thanksgiving dish? <laughs> I am a huge fan of cranberry sauce. I'm a big cranberry sauce person. Ooh. I also, we are, I make my own and I'm going to brag about this because it takes 10 minutes and people don't understand that adding citrus, adding fresh orange peel rind and orange rind and orange, a little smattering, a bit of a splash of orange juice is critical. I also am going to announce that I'm at a, I'll say this in my what's good, but we're on the topic. I'm going to do a Friendsgiving, which I'd never heard of before till this morning. And I'm going to do it in Princeton with Brenda, uh, Steph Yang and Meg Linhan, who don't know we're doing it yet. So I need to, <laughs> let them, so I, I need to message them and let them know that we're doing it. Cause I just think it's a fabulous 
it's a fabulous idea. Celebrate, like you said, ignore the colonialist, horrible traditions and make up your own. And if that means we go get pizza and Steph's rented car, that's what we can do. I love it. Uh, Brenda? I like, I'm embarrassed to tell you what I like. <laughs> I, <laughs> no shame. No shame, like Brenda. It's going to be like salad or thing. something. <laughs> What's that green bean thing with like the casserole? soup and then the, the green bean casserole. Yeah. And yeah. the turkey mm-hmm. onions. Like, I really like that way more than I should. Oh, it's delicious. Well, yeah, but some people like do it nicely with real green beans and stuff like that. I don't like it. I actually all. made I made a real one yesterday. Yeah, I don't it want was that. delicious. I know yeah. it is, but it's like the comfort. It's like the memory. No, I, I think my working class, you know, family mostly used ingredients from cans my whole life, and yes. there's still some <laughs> I'm very nostalgic about. And that's well. Yeah, I think that's also a, a, like a, g- a generational thing. Like I, there was a lot of uh, yeah. you know cream of mushroom soup used in oh, the eighties, yeah. just full stop. And <laughs> you know that was a huge part of my like meatloaf with Kit a Campbell's tomato soup on top of it. Even it biscuits was a huge... coming from a can. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Canned biscuits are amazing. <laughs> you mean like Pillsbury yeah. biscuits? Like yeah. what do you mean by canned? Yeah, like, like that. that? Where you pop them canned with frozen a can. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. They make the best Cinnabons. Like, I get Cinnabons from Pillsbury. Like, because they're easy and I don't bake. So let's not knock the canned things. Yes. with you. Yes, so some of the great things I ate yesterday were, for the first time, I had a deep-fried turkey. Um, oh, turkey in the so deep fryer. Good. So good. Oh, my so gosh. Good. That was life-changing. I made some great Brussels sprouts with bacon, I have to say. Bacon nice. and a lot of butter on mm. the Brussels sprouts. Mashed potatoes are always really good. Just, I mean, just a classic favorite of mine. So, I honestly, I'm very full right now. <laughs> but would like to continue to eat again. If I could have another day full day of eating and drinking today, that would be great. But instead, we have the next best thing, which is burn it all down. <laughs> All right, friends, as we know, how we talk about and write about violence against women matters. It's important to do so responsibly. And this week, there were two examples of high profile and powerful men doing so incredibly irresponsibly. So I just really want to give us space to talk about this. First off, let's talk about the more straightforward one. Alexi McCammond, a campaign reporter for Axios, was chatting with Charles Barkley when In casual conversation, he told her, I don't hit women, but if I did, I would hit you. And when she objected to that, he told her that she just couldn't take a joke. Barkley has apologized, but my God, how is this still happening? How are we still making offhand comments about beating up women in 2019? And I mean, it's inappropriate to do literally any time, obviously, but this is a female reporter on the job anyways it's just oh my god it's so disgusting so that's one and then we also found out this week david jesse of the detroit free press made me hate malcolm gladwell even more which i really did not think was possible so malcolm gladwell who you know people unironically refer refer to as a thought leader and you know oprah endorses and stuff So he released a book talking to strangers a few months ago, 
this book might sound familiar because Jessica already put him on the burn pile because of a chapter where he re-examines the Jerry Sandusky sexual abuse case at Penn State using a lot of research conducted by Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky truthers, who are, yes, exactly what you think they are, people who think that Sandusky and especially Paterno did nothing wrong. So yeah, complete bullshit. Well, apparently there was even more bullshit there than was previously known. Because the Free Press reported that Lisa Larynx, the mother of Larry Nassar survivor Kaylee Larynx, came forward saying that Gladwell used an interview that she gave to another podcast as part of his audiobook without her permission. Jesus. <laughs> okay, so this gets a bit complicated. Follow with me. Believed is an award-winning podcast about the Nasser case produced by Michigan Radio and NPR, co-hosted by Kate Wells and Lindsay Smith. These reporters did a phenomenal job earning the trust of the survivors and their families and telling the, the, their stories with care. So in that podcast, Lisa comes forward about one of the biggest regrets in her life, the day her younger daughter, Kaylee, told her that Nasser was inappropriately touching her. And Lisa brushed it off because her husband had been in the room during the entire appointment and didn't see any abuse. So Gladwell, who asked permission for Michigan Radio to use this clip, but did not reach out to Larynx and did not reach out to reporters, Wells and Smith, and neither did Michigan Radio. So all this was a complete surprise to Lee's Larynx and to Wells and Smith. But Gladwell used that clip about her talking about that horrible time in her life in the middle of a factually incorrect section about Nasser's case. And again, this is all embedded in a larger chapter about excusing Jerry Sandusky's enablers. This is disgusting. Gladwell's trying to prove his default to truth theory, basically saying that like what we think we know, which is usually the best people, is what we default to in tough times because the alternative is too absurd to comprehend. So Gladwell thinks he is backing up and excusing Larynx's story and telling why her reaction was okay. But what he really does by handling this so irresponsibly is violate her again. I talked with Lisa for Power Plays, uh, my newsletter. You can read the whole thing at powerplays.news, but I wanted to read this quote about what she's been through. I've been through a lot. I had cancer at 40. My oldest daughter had cancer. I lost my daddy or go tomorrow, and that was hard in a different sort of way. But this is a devastating gut punch that totally takes your breath away. Because if I go to the worst experience of my life, it would be the day it was confirmed that Kaylee was sexually assaulted by Nasser and that I didn't stop it. That failure as a parent is one of the worst things. And this takes you right back there. It's kind of like how you're drowning. And they're holding you underwater for too long. And it's like I just got my head above water, and I'm being dunked right back down. I can't breathe. I can't function. Whew, you guys, I'm, I know this has been long. I need to just pass the baton. I'm too mad to really even kind of comprehend. This is a lot. Shireen. Yeah, I just wanted to add a couple of things. First of all, Jerry Sandusky, for those that didn't hear, was resentenced to between 30 and 60 years. So the timing of this is really interesting as Gladwell is making money off his like bullshit. And he is really, truly one of, uh, he's an incredibly revered writer. He's celebrated, especially in Canada for being Canadian and all this kind of stuff. And it's really sickening that to me, that when these issues come up, they're quickly deflected 
and the conversation and, and what Lindsay's talking about, and I'll rage about Charles Barkley in a second, is just that there is this absolute questioning of someone's lived experience and truth. And not only like when we tell survivors, oh, well, it hasn't been proven in court. It's fucking been proven in court now over and over again. But this guy still chooses to sort of re-question that narrative. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's so upsetting and enraging. And for those that are advocates of, of, of survivors of uh, sexualized violence or just people who have a sense of justice and a sense of humanity, this is really dangerous what Malcolm Gladwell's doing. And he comes across as being very sort of, he's not even strident. He's very casual in dismissing criticisms of this. Like he's literally gone and been, he's like just sort of almost, giving a further platform to people that have so brutally like endangered and, and violated people. It, it's it's so upsetting to me why this guy just, his books aren't actually burned. Like a nice, good, I know like the academic and you, Brenda, is probably like, no, we shouldn't do that. I don't know. But, but this particular one, it's just, it's <laughs> too much for me. Like I went to a, a bookstore the other day and I saw his book there and I was going to secretly take all of them and hide them somewhere. But I just, there's cameras and stuff everywhere. It's Christmas time. So can't do that. Brenda? I mean, yeah, I don't know that I would burn his book, but I certainly wouldn't buy it. Um, and, and your newsletter was really great, Lynn. So um, if people haven't read it, they should check it out. This past week, of course, Jerry Sandusky's original sentence was upheld, you know, by the mm -hmm. courts, the 30 to 60 years for abusing, sexually abusing children. And all of this is related, you know, the way that you treat women, the way that you treat children, the way that you treat male victims as well. So I just find it. Uh, did you all see that at the Penn State game, there was then an airplane that said, come on, honor Joe Paterno, like a big banner? No. Um, no? no. Okay. Really? I, I, I didn't investigate if that was like photoshopped or anything, but it was going around Twitter. And um, it just made me sick to my stomach. I mean, I, I think it's just a lack of focus on victims and what abuse does and the reverberations that it, that it has mm -hmm. in, in all facets mm -hmm. of life and the pain that it causes people. And so Charles Barkley being cavalier about it or Malcolm Gladwell is just it's it's really disgusting. And it's part of what just perpetuates this. I think this really sick tendency in society to to not identify with victims and to or survivors and to identify with perpetrators and I think that just it sort of gives them this pass and then this idea of cancel culture and shit is the same when they say stuff like um you know about political correctness you know why is it like a laughable dirty thing to want to be sensitive and anti-racist and anti-sexist like why is this like now that's the new <laughs> word like that's the new word like cancel culture like you're a cancel culture person like what what the what is that like i like culture i don't like your culture of violence but i'm yeah. good with with culture so i mean there there comes to be these like lightning words that help with that deflection you know these like flash words like p political correctness or something and cancel culture. And it's like, yeah, like, really, like, domestic violence should be canceled. <laughs> I, right. Really, you right. know, you should be well, politically correct if that means not being a racist asshole. 
I don't know. Well, I the other thing, too, is that this whole idea of people saying, oh, you're a cancel culturist. It's like, no, I'm just demanding accountability. Don't right. conflate. Thank don't you. Con- don't conflate what I'm saying. I'm saying that. And this is something when I was on the national and here in Canada, that's what I said. I said, this whole cancel culture thing is just, a, it's a complete shield being used up to prevent accountability. And whether it's racism, homophobia, you know, violent patriarchy, toxic masculine, whatever, I'm not, I'm not here for it. And people that are like, you're a cancel culture, culturalist, you just want to throw a chair at them, you know, and, or other things. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, I think. Somebody said on Twitter, like, it's not cancel culture in the old days used to be called being responsible for your actions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also okay to be ashamed. It's okay to shame (gasps) people when they've done hurtful things. Like, that's okay. You know, you tell children that they should own their mistakes and they should recognize it and they should feel that remorse. So it's okay to shame people. And if they're too ignorant to know that what they've done is wrong, after all of our work to try to educate them, then they should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah. But the whole thing with Charles Barkley, that just men oh, yeah. were just, men were, men were, they were always extra, but this week they were extra, extra. That's and- the thing. It's just like, I know these are weird things to kind of group together, but it's just like, I just want to yell at the men. Like, can we just And that's, like- that's okay. And you're absolutely right to do that. Like, I saw that and I'm like, what are, he's setting a precedent of telling professional that it's okay to literally attack her. And I'm like, everyone's like, oh, you know, when he was like, you can't take a joke. I'm like, no, Chuck, that is not the right response. And I was having this conversation with my, uh, my 15 year old, he had a volleyball tournament, we're driving back. And I I told him that I was, he's like, are you going to burn Chuck? I'm like, of course I'm going to burn Chuck. He's like, fair. He's like, just please don't burn Embiid. He loves Embiid. So he's like, don't burn him. I'm like, what did he do? He's like, oh, nothing, nothing. He did nothing. (laughs) But you can, you can, you can totally, I told him, you know why this is dangerous? He says, yes, I understand. And it was not okay. I'm like, do you see people on social media calling him out? He's like, not enough. Yeah. Even like a 15 year old can tell you that there wasn't enough saying that, dude, you were wrong. And this reporter who came came forward with this story, she's been getting death threats all week. Yeah, and yeah. of course, those of us in sports media aren't that shocked, but it's still, you know, she's a politics reporter. And, but it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just so depressing. <laughs> it is, is depressing. And we should just mention, you know, why is this constantly on a sports podcast? I mean, I, I know that it, it happens everywhere, but I just think that, we need to sort of underscore too that sports has been a safe haven for people like this. And it's not the only place, but it does come out like really acutely and and persistently in sports because of the whole history of them. So, you know, it's worth just underlining like to tackle it in sports is really, I, I know it's not more important than let's say like the workplace or another place, but it is, it is a space. It's a space. And like Espy Nation did a good t- good job of recognizing this week. This also doesn't happen in a vacuum for Charles Barkley in particular. He has a history of troubling comments about uh, domestic violence and violence against women. He has a, a history of um, sexism. So, you know, we need to recognize that as, as well. And, you know, the thing about the Mal- Malcolm Gladwell to, to kind of wrap up by coming back to that is he misses all nuance in this because he's just trying to like jam these theories together 
to make him because he thinks it makes him seem smart and like contrarian which is just so stupid like i just like honestly like it's all infuriating i listened to multiple chapters of his book so i could write the newsletter knowledgeably and it's the worst thing i've ever done to myself (laughs) and um but he you know what you're doing here is you're missing all nuance he's using this theory to basically excuse all of the enabling right of these monsters And that, you know, he's conflating institutional enabling and the trust. Like, why did this mother trust, have this trust that she defaulted to in these moments? It's because the institutions had been enabling him for decades, (laughs) right? So you can't then also excuse the institutional enabling. Because once again, you're saying nobody can be held responsible for anything, And that's just not how any of this works. I mean, in a different chapter of this book, Malcolm Gladwell literally, well actually, Brock Turner's rape victims' victim impact statement. Oh, my God. (laughs) He reads from that powerful statement. And then at the end, he goes, but what if? (laughs) No, no, no. It's not okay. And it's not okay that this man continues to get endorsed by the biggest publishers in the world when what he is doing is taking the worst moments of people's lives, twisting them, and using them for his own benefit, Mm -hmm. no matter what the real context and nuance is. As To take this back to where we started with Brenda saying he forgets that victims and survivors exist he doesn't care about them he only cares about himself and his ability to be smart all right from one happy topic on to the next (laughs) shereen i think some things have been happening related is football still racist (laughs) (laughs) oh dear football is so very racist now in an incredible turn of non-surprise this week mark (laughs) samson former coach of the lionesses the england women's national team was charged with racist abuse now for those of you that follow our podcast and have we know that you know we've had issues with mark samson from a very long time ago we were stood in solidarity with Annie Aluko when she had to testify in front of a parliamentary committee hearing about the systemic racism in football. Anyway, so Mark Sampson is trash. We know that. So moving on to more trashy subjects, we all, I don't know if you all rather have been following the constant abuse that Mario Balotelli gets. And he plays in Serie A, which is the Italian men's league. Now, Mario Balotelli, they call him Super Mario, is a wonderful player, Italian national. And just gets the worst type of abuse. Most recently, there was a bit of a brouhaha because he actually kicked a ball into the stands when he was, you know, literally suffering. For on the, he was on the receiving end of very vile racist abuse from Verona fans. And he kicked the ball into the stands in, in, in a sense of anger. So anyway, the club ended up suspending that particular fan or that group of fans. But then the supporters group issued a statement that Balotelli was arrogant. And it just, you know, rage ensued on Twitter from many people. And just what I find shocking about this, and we'll probably dive into this a little bit, is that 
the constant reporting and like 90% of reporting of, of football in, in Europe and basically abroad is, is, is white folks in North America anyway, and how they're like constantly reporting on the same thing over and over again. And it finally takes, you know, BIPOC or BAME journalists to finally say like, this is enough. Like, I'm not interested in hearing the false surprise and the you, like of, of white journalists constantly talking about it. Cause at this point, I don't think that it's just another report. So, but in, in in an interesting turn of events, a Dutch soccer match, what the players did, and this is really, really interesting, they ended up not playing the last couple of minutes of the match in protest of racism and feeling like how they would really, how they were feeling and how when players are so frustrated, they end up walking off the pitch. Well, what this happened, what what happened, and this was literally just a couple of days ago. So the Dutch soccer team, which is the Eredivisie, which is like a specific division in Dutch professional football. So they decided to literally walk off the bench and it's Eredivisie and I hope I'm pronouncing this okay, Eredivisie, which are their two top leagues in that country. They literally just stopped playing and they understood both teams were like, no, this is just our, it's our, it's our pushback. It's our resistance. And I think that was, that was really, really important. And it was also tweeted out from the Dutch national like Twitter account, which is, I think was really, really, really important. And what actually prompted this was Excelsior winger, Ahmed Mendes Moreira. He was, they were doing songs about, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this super racist tradition in Holland called Black Pete, quote unquote, which is just very bizarre. And Dutch folks will say, no, it's not racist. It's a part of our culture. Well, say it with me, people, your culture can be racist. So what ended the, like they were singing songs and directing them at Moreira. And then it was just his players and his team and his, you know, his support system were like, no, this is, is terrible. So there can be ways to do it. I mean, I would love to hear you, your all thoughts. The last thing I'm just going to say about this before we get into our discussion is, you know, one of my favorite professional players is Kevin Prince Boateng, former um, national from Ghana as well. He has basically said that he is so fed up with the discrimination in City uh, that he is going to himself set up a racism task force in 2020. So instead of having other organizations lead the charge, he's just like, it's not, they're not doing enough. I'm going to do it with a series of other players. He hasn't really announced who those players are. But, you know, especially with what happens with Lukaku all the time, Moise Keane and uh, Koulibaly, uh, Kalidou Koulibaly are the ones that are very often targeted. And and those are famous ones. So there are other players, I'm sure, that aren't don't have as high of a profile that are abused as well. So, I mean, and Boateng is, is amazing. And he's just like, I'm not going to stand for this and just wanting to show solidarity. But what bothers me about this at the same time, as I applaud him, is that he's having to do the work. The work always falls on the marginalized, always. And it's so, it's just... It's just really frustrating. I want to offer him all the support in the world, but I'm also so irritated that it has to happen. Brenda? Yeah, so we should probably, or maybe we want to talk a little bit about, you know, why this has been more in the news over the last few months, because as Shireen said, this has been going on for years and years and years. So FIFA put into place in July a new three-step protocol and that protocol includes, you know, warnings over the loudspeaker, temporary suspension of a match until homophobic, racist, 
xenophobic, you know, far right behavior or gender discrimination ceases. And then the next step is to forfeit the match. So there have been a lot more stoppages over the last, you know, four months than than there have been. And so in one sense, I, I don't think there's anything more racist about this moment, but there there is a, a kind of new mandate for referees to take more action. And when they take that action or when they don't take that action, then, you know, we see we see players being caught, you know, in very terrible, terrible situations and ones that just need to stop immediately. I mean, it's just so painful. Recently in the Ukrainian Premier League, Tyson, a Brazilian player who plays for Shakhtar Donetsk, was racially abused during a match against Dynamo Kiev. And in that, it was it was just horrible, horrible monkey chanting and uh, and other things being said to him he was crying oh my god he, he was crying he was in tears he and he flipped off the crowd and was given a red card <laughs> like so this was absolutely a violation like the referee was was told by the players and again Shreen yes they are absolutely doing the work they should have been told there's no reason why it had to be them and on their shoulders telling them, but he was informed the proper action was not taken. He was given a red card and then get this, it gets even worse. (laughs) This is, this is the punishment. Dynamo Kiev has to play one match in a closed stadium, right? No fans that that's a, that's a serious punishment for a club. Then only a 17,000 pound fine. And they play one more match on probation. Tyson, the victim Gets a one match ban entirely and then two on oh probation. God. What? Yeah, for flipping off the crowd. Like, what in the hell? And this happens to Brazilian players all the time. I document this for fair all the time, the the NGO that monitors this. And I would just like to say the Fair Network also is a place where if anyone reports abuse and discrimination, it's very, very helpful. They can help make reports and, and take appropriate actions. Before we get crazy about the Brazilian case too, I would just like to say in Brazil... Flamengo player Hugo Souza uh, was also given monkey chance by fans of Vasco this week. So, you know, Brazilians were horrified by the event in the Ukraine, but haven't done, and I should say that's the under 20 Flamengo side, um, but haven't done nearly enough within Brazil itself. This is all made worse by the fact that there are really major leaders complaining, like, for example, the head of French football, Noel Legrat, who says that there are too many matches stopping and that he has told his referees to no longer stop any for homophobic abuse. Like, just forget it. But okay, yes, I guess racism. So that's the kind of shit where you're just like, seriously, dude? But seriously? So, you know, you have major club presidents and league league presidents and, and people within FIFA undermining, you know, what they're trying to do. It'll be very interesting as we look at qualifying for the World Cup because that's really under FIFA control. So, Yeah, I mean, Brenda, when you look at things like the Dutch soccer protests that we just saw, like, I'm kind of curious 
because obviously it's getting a lot of press as a feel good mm. story. Is that the right way to be covering that? And is that the way forward to have other protests like this? Well, I mean, there's a fine line between, you know, sanctions and punishment and constructing a different kind of football culture, right? So, I mean, I think it's, you know, good, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't say it's bad. But what I think needs to happen in addition to very, very harsh punishments, like I think that that it's... It, there's no other way to get through to fans than to have collective responsibility. And then you hear this whining like, well, then there's going to be one or two fans that bought tickets and now they can't see their team. It's like, so what? is that really the worst case scenario (laughs) these are like people going to their jobs and getting racially abused and crying dude i cannot even see it again it's just heartbreaking but there also needs to be ongoing educational actions that take place at these clubs because they really are large social institutions that start at the very bottom. So, you know, ongoing grassroots actions that are taken and campaigns that are taken to change the way that people participate in football. Because by the time you get to organized fan supporters, by the time they're signed up for that, they're already racist if they're racist. They already think this is a space they can express their racism you know, on. So, I mean, the Dutch campaign is fine. It's great. It's really good. Really, really good. And I will say, I will say there was um, during a Romania, what was it? Romania, Sweden match. There was a huge banner that said, fuck fair. So I would just like to say, I felt really, really proud about that. (laughs) (laughs) It even had like the lettering of fair, like the exact sort of, you know, the exact font and everything. And I thought, wow, it's really working. Like if we've made people this mad. (laughs) Do you want to go? I mean, I know we talked about on the show before, but just recap a little, I mean, and you touched on a little bit here, but what exactly you do with fair, because I'm just so proud of you and the work you do. Oh, well, so um, (laughs) right now I am the development lead for the Americas. So I oversee the monitoring system in North and South America. So Conmebol and CONCACAF looking forward to the qualifiers for the 2022 Qatar World Cup. And so we observe and uh, report incidents of racism, homophobia, gender violence, xenophobia, and also develop a grant program, Football People Weeks, which is grassroots programs like Friends of the Show at the Minnesota Football Club of Minnesota Football Show, who did lengthy interviews with refugees who are forming clubs and in in the Minneapolis area, or whether it's like LGBT leagues in Mexico City. So it's both uh, the idea of punishment, but also constructing like a sort of different culture, as I was talking about. Oh, that's so important. And I mean, you know, because we, we, I feel like every other week on the burn pile, we have another instance of not just racism in soccer, but racism in the youth levels in soccer globally. And, you know, when I was researching this topic, I think that's what stuck out to me. And it just really hammers home what you're saying, Brenda, that this is all learned so early on. And so that by the time you get to these pro levels, if you're only focusing your solutions there, you're missing the point. Um, Shireen? 
Yeah, thank you. I think it's also important to know that we talk about it. There's a lot of abuse in grassroots and not so much, sorry, grassroots, but youth levels is what I mean. And the first time I ever experienced racial abuse and really violent racial abuse was on a soccer pitch. And I think that is experienced for many many people. I mean, I can only speak to my own experience, but I've heard stories of friends and BIPOC, you know, colleagues and and, and other sports writers and athletes that have been like, yeah, it's the first place I heard it too. And because it's one of the spaces where you're so outnumbered as opposed to like your community and your family and you're in spaces that don't reflect you. And this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It's constantly hard is watch professional footballers cry because of racist abuse. And let's also not delude ourselves to think that it only happens in men's league. It definitely happens in women's as well. And there's this idea that because women's leagues are, you know, they're talking about sexism and fighting inequality, that this doesn't happen. It absolutely does happen. And we talked about it on our show. I think it's really important to understand that there are things we can do about it. And yes, huge hat tip to FAIR. Love that organization. And it is because it's learned behavior. If you see it, act on it. Don't, it's not okay if you see it in the stadium, if you see it reported, or just say, simply say, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to get involved. What, you don't want to get involved in, like, fixing society? What does that even mean? Like, if you see something, say something, because it's right. so toxic, and it literally could, it, it destroys lives. Racism absolutely destroys lives. And, you know, we all have a responsibility to do it. It doesn't matter if you're from that community or not. It doesn't matter if you're another person of color who witnesses anti-blackness. You definitely have a responsibility to say something. So I think that, you know, it, hopefully we'll talk about this less. But I mean, I just look forward to the measures being stridently imposed. Next, we have Shireen's interview with Kirsten Whalen on women's hockey. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. And today I'm very, very, very excited to have one of my fave hockey writers, Kirsten Whalen. Kirsten is a hockey writer focused on women's sports and particularly women's hockey at the Victory Press. She has a background in labor organizing and has an amazing three-legged cat named Pierre. Hello, Kirsten. Hi. So I brought you on because I really wanted you to help me navigate through all the conversations and discourses in women's hockey, because right now I feel like I'm that Winona Ryder, Jeff, looking at all the math problems going, what's happening? Like, I just really want women's hockey to thrive and I'm getting confused by comments and, you know, sort of things being thrown around. Why can't we just all get along? Isn't that the million dollar question? What are your thoughts on this? Like, can you take us back to kind of like what's happening here? The broad strokes overview of women's hockey? Pretty much since last, since March 31st, 2019, when the C-Dub shut down, just for our listeners who might not know. Yeah. So for those who aren't uh, familiar with the ins and outs of the women's hockey scene at the moment, uh, at least on the professional level in North America, Uh, The Canadian Women's Hockey League, which had four teams in Canada, one in the Boston region and one in Shenzhen, China, uh, folded fairly suddenly on March 31st of 2019. At that point, the only other uh, ostensibly professional women's hockey league in North America was the National Women's Hockey League, the NWHL, with uh, five teams in the United States, mostly centered uh, along the East Coast. Basically, 
in the weeks uh, following the shattering of the CWHL, a bunch of the uh, top women's hockey players in the world, so the entirety of the U.S. and Canadian national teams, as well as most of the players who had previously played in the CWHL and a large number of players who had played in the NWHL as well, got together and collectively took a stance that they were not going to be playing professional women's hockey in a league that existed in North America because they wanted to fight for a league that would provide the resources that they felt women's hockey needed and deserved. So uh, here we are in November and we've got those players have formed the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, the PWHPA, and are basically organizing a tour where they've had three stops so far and have more to come in the 2020 and are playing small tournaments. Meanwhile, the NWHL is playing a regular season with uh, a few players who were in the league already, but mostly uh, a large number of new players who uh, have not previously been on the scene, so to speak, and they've continued sort of business as usual. Uh, They've been making a lot of announcements, you know, of additions of new sponsors, of new funding sources. A lot has uh, not been disclosed publicly in terms of uh, what anything actually means. So the situation is kind of difficult to parse at the moment. Yeah, I have a a question for you. So have there been players that have left the PWHPA to go to the NWHL or overseas? Like, have they left? Because like going from a professional league to like just getting tournaments whenever possible and the Dream Gap Tour, which is the, which is the tour that they were on, have they, have any left that to go to the NWHL? So there are a couple of players who went overseas, but they didn't leave the PWHPA to do that. I know there's been some confusion, but that's not really inconsistent because the statement from the PWHPA from the very beginning was that they wouldn't play in an existing league in North America. And so Uh, players who have gone overseas uh, have all maintained that they stand with the PWHPA and they still support that mission and they are still working towards that goal. There are players who did initially associate themselves with the PWHPA's pledge at the very beginning in the early weeks and months who then wound up eventually signing contracts with the NWHL. A small handful of players did wind up doing that. But since the actual season, so to speak, has begun, there hasn't been anyone defecting, so to speak, from the movement. So what the PWHPA players stand for is about having an existing league structure, you know, health insurance, livable wages, the stuff that we all think is normal and, you know, expected and deserved. Why would it come across that the NWHL or itself doesn't support that? Like, don't they support that? They want their the game to grow. They want, they pay their players, don't they? Like, why are those two beliefs inconsistent or, in, you know, sort of non-compatible? Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask anybody associated with the NWHL, they will tell you that they want to be able to provide those things. The reality right now is that they can't. And basically, both in terms of the broader women's sports landscape, having an independent league relying on influxes of venture capital is not necessarily the most obvious route uh, based on precedent to achieve those things in a lot of people's eyes. Uh, They don't have access to existing infrastructure. For instance, they're having to pay venue rentals, having to rely on existing schedules and sort of work from that side of things. 
Beyond that, there's a huge issue of mistrust and broken trust. An obviously well-cited issue is the fact that in 2016, just almost exactly three years ago to this date, uh, the NWHL, without consulting players at all, unilaterally slashed salaries by a very significant amount. And so players who had signed contracts were suddenly unable to rely on that source of income. And that's something that everyone is well aware of. But throughout the years, there have been other issues that have come up when regards to playing conditions, training conditions, and various aspects of what it means to be a player playing and existing as a worker in that league that have led many of them to seriously doubt the league's, I guess, prioritization of player well-being as opposed to maintaining the league in itself as a business. Okay. And the commissioner for the NWHL is Danny Ryland. And She's been there for how long? She has been there from the beginning. It's uh, the league that she founded. So, you know, the groundwork, I guess, began in earnest in 2014, and she remains commissioner today. So one of the things I wanted to ask, which prompted a little bit of my my having you on, was comments by Haley Wickenheiser, who's just recently been inducted to the Hockey Hall of Fame, but also, you know, just sort of saying, talking about the NWHL in, in a different way. And, and some might have considered it not to be complimentary, but flat out Hillary Knight saying that the NW was like a beer league. And that made me think that, wait a minute, like this isn't, you know, is this really where we want to go with this conversation? And of course they have perspectives and experience, obviously that I don't, but just sort of wondering, was that, A, is that necessary? And B, like, what are they getting at? I guess to start out with Haley Wickenheiser, I think it, is important to remember when looking at her comments that Haley Wickenheiser is not a representative of the PWHPA. She's not really involved with that organization. And although I suspect that most players would concede that they don't fully disagree with what she's saying and that they do believe that the NHL sort of running a women's hockey league is the most expedient way to get to their end goal. She's also not speaking for them and she's not speaking on behalf of the organization. And she really, you know, isn't coming from that place. So I think not necessarily conflating them is something that would be helpful in this conversation. Okay. But yeah, I think that at the end of the day, she uh, said the same thing pretty much uh, back when it was CWHL and NWHL in 2016. So she's been very consistent with a a quite strong stance where she does not believe that the NWHL is the model that's going to move women's hockey to the place where she and many others would like to see it. Obviously, you know, that lack of faith in the NWHL and its leadership is something that is widely shared. But as for, you know, what she's saying, how she's saying it, I, I don't know where that fits, so to speak. To turn towards what Hillary Knight said, you know, the idea that it's a glorified beer league, she has used that exact phrase uh, to reference the CWHL as well. And so I think that when she's saying, you know, this is a glorified beer league, what she's trying to get at is the fact that despite the best efforts of many of the people involved, despite the dedication of the volunteers, neither of these leagues was able to 
provide what we should really be demanding for professional women's hockey. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the full-time livable wage. That is the conditions. That is having a locker room that is devoted just to that team where they can leave their things, where they can consistently have access to what they need. Being able to practice at reasonable hours. It's also, you know, all sorts of little details. It also means a league that provides health insurance and not just accident insurance. So actually having everything you need to thrive as an athlete and as an employee. So, you know, that's something that she's been pretty consistent about, uh, you know, neither of these leagues offering. I think uh, it sort of hit a nerve this time a little bit differently, probably uh, in large part because we're mid-season with the NWHL. Right. (laughs) But, uh, you know, one of the other things she said later in that same interview was, you know, not having health care and getting paid pennies to go play and call yourself professional. That's not something any of us are interested in. So I think that really gets down, you know, is it the most diplomatic way to say it? Not necessarily, but, you know, these are things that, as you mentioned, she she actually faced firsthand. She played in both leagues. She has played without having health insurance from the league. She has played, you know, in the year where salaries were slashed. So I think knowing firsthand that, you know, this is what professional hockey has been able to offer her as one of the best players in the game for the entirety of her post-collegiate career, she should never have been in that position. Nobody should be in that position. And, you know, if she doesn't have faith that the NWHL can get us past that position, then you know, I think that's really where she's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's just boggling to me that professional athletes playing without healthcare. Like, I just, it's really conceptually difficult to understand because like, that's the first thing that you would think that somebody would need in terms of physio, in terms of doctors, in terms of like injuries, like hopefully not, but just as a professional athlete, when you're using your body in this way, in such, in such an intense way, it's, it's just unfathomable. But I mean, more respect to these women for what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, there's different details in terms of types of insurance, you know, what is isn't offered. I think medical insurance is sort of the big one that people get confused about that has never been offered by the NWHL. It also wasn't offered in the CWHL, but it's a little bit different when you've got universalized healthcare in Canada. And I, I do believe that travel insurance was covered, but, you know, the types of insurance, what's actually being covered, what's not, what's provided, what is an athlete expected to bring on her own because paying for a comprehensive healthcare coverage plan is not cheap. You know, that pretty much eats up your salary with what Mm -hmm. some of these professional leagues have been able to offer. So from what I understand, the conversations that I've been having sort of on record and in chat groups and in DMs and in this and that, is that very much that the PWHPA really feels like the NHL coming on board would really help because of resources and allocation and accessibility to media and just just generally everything. But as somebody who doesn't trust the NHL with hockey, men's hockey, I'm reluctant as a fan, as a sports writer, to have them sort of get involved in women's hockey, which to this point, I feel is like the purest form of hockey that there is out there. Because like, you know, the women having access and for me, the P-Dub has been great because it's women really taking agency over their sport. and you know, the systems, either racism, homophobia, and suppression and oppression in men's hockey from the NHL, that concerns me. Is that really the way to go, you think, the the NHL getting involved? Yeah, here? I mean, that's something that I've struggled with a lot for all of the reasons that you've mentioned. 
And I think what it comes down to is that at the end of the day, if women's hockey players are going to actually be able to earn a livable wage to have playing conditions that they are satisfied with that are worthy of professional athletes of their caliber, then there needs to be an influx of money and resources. And that is going to have to come from somewhere. And in our world existing under capitalism, the somewhere that that money would come from almost invariably is going to wind up having a source that I don't think that we'd ever be particularly happy with. And so, you know, at the end of the day, if it's the NHL, we've got all of these problems that we're very aware of that exist within a sporting league context, but is, you know, a a wealthy venture capitalist necessarily any better? I'm not so sure. And so that's kind of how I've come to approach it. I think the other aspect is just that if we look at the WNBA, which has been a frequent point of comparison, there are so many issues that players are continuing to fight against and to fight for in that league. But one of the things that's worth pointing out is that, you know, it did provide the groundwork for there to be a livable wage, to have a better platform, to be able to fight for more. And those players have never given up the fight. So I think that sometimes there's this idea that, oh, look at all of these problems in the WNBA. This isn't going to solve everything. But I don't think the idea is that the NHL would solve everything. It just provides a platform to make things more livable. And the fight is always going to continue for female athletes. Yeah. So the WNBA is actually one of the the things that I've been, that's been referred to as the model because it took time, there was investment and it's steadily growing. And now their viewership, they're getting sponsors with, you know, TV, like media corporations and stuff like this. It's growing. Even in the time that I've really started to pay attention to them, it went from just airing live on Twitter from being available on like in, even in Canada on TV, which I think is amazing and, and important. So, you know, so the WNBA, like you said, the fight sadly will never be over even the most optimistic of us <laughs> know that it won't be, but, you know, at least it can get better. And like, you know, the priority here is basically what you're saying is so that these players can play and survive is basically what we're, we're talking about minimum things here. We're not talking about like everything else that comes after is frills and endorsements. We're really just talking about a livable wage. Yeah. It really is sort of the base minimum to be able to focus on the sport and that in turn helps improve the quality of the game on the ice, but also just the basic living conditions. It affects who can actually afford to continue in the sport post-college and in the years after that, because at a certain point right now, people are having to make decisions to retire well before when they actually would like to, because they're working second jobs, third jobs. Some of them are juggling school and jobs and hockey on top, and it's just completely unsustainable. So enabling them to just focus on being professional athletes and have that be a decision that they can choose to pursue and not have to worry about what comes after until they're at the point where it's time for what comes after is already such a massive improvement and just you know the bare minimum for really being able to say that we as a society are supporting professional women's sports 
Yeah, I think that's something that always strikes me is like when I first found out about, you know, professional women's leagues and when I started paying attention, like and really loving C-Dub, it was before the CWHL actually paid, they were able to pay their players. And, you know, just sort of finding out this is years ago. Well, years when I mean like four <laughs> um, or three and just finding out the schedules of, of the athletes. Like, I mean, Kirsten, you and I joked about this, but our friend Melanie Desrochers, who used to play with Le Canadien and is part of the Dream Gap Tour, her schedule just, I, I mean, I'm a single mother of four children and her schedule stresses me out. Like, <laughs> Of just the way she worked. And recently when I was in Montreal, you know, we wanted to get together, but Mel was traveling for work and then going straight to hockey. Like she wasn't even able, didn't have an opportunity because of her commitment to the game to like just hang out with friends even, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's pretty staggering. And I, I say this in presentations to people, like think about your favorite men's hockey team. Think about how they would perform if they had to work full-time jobs on top of that. And then just, practice at night and compete on the weekends and the faces of these these students is just like oh that would be terrible in fact a very honest made toronto maple leafs player said they'd probably do worse than they're already doing which is pretty bad which is a very fair comment for that young man to say and so when we're talking about this where are these players now like what are they do is dream gap helping do you really feel like this is helping i mean i don't think that any of them really want to be on the dream gap tour i think that it's a measure that they've taken because they're very adamant that what the NWHL has to offer and what the NWHL has shown them in the past is not something that is acceptable to them. And so this is really an insistence that they're not okay with the status quo. And in the meantime, they need to stay on the ice. They need to stay as visible as possible and continue playing the sport that they love. And so I think that the Dream Gap Tour has had a lot of positives, whether it be in the way that the message has really visibly resonated with a lot of young girls who want to dream of a viable professional future for themselves and are seeing these women stand up for that. You know, there have been some good crowds. The games have been excellent. But at the same time, everyone just wants the league. They want to have that stable structure. They want to have that livable wage. They want to have those steady and reliable and sustainable conditions that meet their needs. And so, you know, the Dream Gap Tour is not the end in itself, but I think that for the purpose of what they are looking for in this moment, it's it's filling a gap, I guess, in, in their schedules as well in what their lives are like when they don't have an adequate league to play in right now. Sure. And for those of us that are out here and for for fans that want to support NWHL players as well. We want to support the athletes playing hockey. Is there a way to do this? Like it, it doesn't have to be like you're, you know, with, oh God, I can't believe I was just about to court, quote W, you're with us or you're against us kind of thing. Like you can, you can love hockey and want the best for women's hockey while supporting the players that are in the NWHL, because like, you know, we want to support that. We want to support playing of the game, the growing of the game, the representation that young girls see of players on the ice. How do we do this? Like, how can this, is there a graceful way for this to be done? I, I really don't have an answer for that. And, you know, I wish it was that simple. I think what makes it complicated is in part because, you know, the crux of what the PWHPA is saying is that what the NWHL is doing is not okay, that it's not good enough and that it's not acceptable. And so 
it comes to a question of can you support the players who have chosen to remain in that league without also supporting the institution in a way that is fundamentally opposed to what the PWHPA is standing for. And I, I don't know how to do that or what the answer is. I think that that's a really, you know, complex area to go into and that, uh, you know, it really requires thinking through things seriously and thinking through, you know, why so many players would be willing to take such a strong stance together Mm-hmm. And to maintain it, even when it's not necessarily personally benefiting them. Well, yeah, for sure. Kirsten, you're one of the people that I think has the smartest brain on many things, including women's hockey. And I really want to appreciate you coming on the show because, you know, it's just a lot to kind of, like you said, think about. And, you know, we care about women's hockey and we want it to grow. We want it to thrive and survive, not just survive. But I really appreciate you taking the time. How is Pierre doing, by the way? He's doing well. He uh, was sitting right in front of me for most of this and eventually got very annoyed with me talking at clearly not him and decided to sit on the floor instead. But he's doing well. Okay, awesome. And I'm assuming he's a hockey fan? Occasionally swats at the screen. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Anyways, thanks again for coming on Burn It All Down. I'm feeling extra Bernie today. (laughs) Brenda, can you kick off the most ragey segment, which means the most sacred segment, (laughs) the burn pile? (laughs) I sure can. I have a weird burn because it's not any particular instance or like event that's happened this week. But I would like to burn the way that men treat women runners. Mm. And this comes from decades of personal experience, but was prompted by a recent article in The Guardian that we can put in the show notes that analyzes the level of harassment that women who run receive from the elite level to people like me who just sort of lace up and see what happens. And it was marathoner Lily Partridge who spoke about two particular things that happened to her, one where she and the other women were violently pushed around for starting position at a race, and another one where she was followed by a man, and this is from that article, who ran, quote, intimately close to her. Oh, God. And I had never known that there's a name for being beaten by a woman in cycling and running called to be chicked. Yeah, yeah. I really like. I had no idea. I, anyway, this brought up all kinds of memories of getting heckled and harassed, running in Queens in New York City for years while I was trying to hurdle over rats, and groups of men waiting in employment lines, or even groups of two, almost never alone, would say anything, any any kind of thing to distract me in Spanish, English, Bengali. You know, Queens is a very diverse place, but this was something across the board. And I just want to burn the insecurity of those men. That starts, you know, on the back of the school bus telling girls that they're bigger, faster, stronger, that even as men enjoy conversations and hypothetical scenarios in which the best woman in any given sport or physical activity could never be the best man, you know, whatever, get Mm. lost, burn it. Burn. Burn. Shireen? Yes, I'm... I'm not excited about this burn because I love that you said it's the most sacred. (laughs) 
What I'm going to burn is something that was brought to my attention by my friend Hind Mucky. And she's in the United States and is an avid figure skating fan. And she and another new friend, Rose Dayton, you know, were explaining this to me. I'm basically going to burn the way that Orientalist interpretations in figure skating are brought and and they're performed. So for example, Madison Chalk and Evan Bates are a figure skating duo and they come up, they came up with a routine that is really, really just a mishmash of all these terrible appropriative things. So I got into an exchange with uh, Rose Dayton and Rose is actually is a Canadian former figure skater and a PhD candidate in Islamic studies at Emory university. And she said this to me about this because I watched, I tried to watch their performance on YouTube and I could barely get past the first 30 seconds of this typical snake charming, ridiculous thing. And this is what Rose said to me. Skating as a sport needs to reckon with its whiteness. If choreographers value being respectful of other cultures, in this case, Arab cultures, then they should have skaters seriously study dance techniques and culture with Arab experts. While I'm sure Chalk and Bates are unaware and well-intending, their 2019 FD plays off the reductive orientalist trope of the snake charmer, which is a well-known symbol used at the time of colonial officers and the earliest European orientalist scholars to paint Middle East as exotic, barbaric, and sexual. This trope, along with the practice of blending symbols from various Eastern cultures together, is a system, a systemic process taken up by European powers through cultural representation and art, film, and literature. And Chalk and Bates do, Bates do this exactly. They combine disparate dance genres like belly dancing, ancient Egyptian stylization, and Bollywood-inspired thumka together, which do not go together, and as though they do not belong to distinct cultural contexts. They could have studied Arab dance seriously, but instead they use the Western stereotypes about the Middle East that have been used historically to diminish and subjugate Arabs, especially Arab women, to an inferior status within Western imagination. Thus, reducing Arab culture and dance to the snake charmer is a maneuver of soft power through which the West asserts its supposed authority and superiority over the East. So what I am going to say here, and thank you, Rose, for that, is that I don't know if you remember Meryl Davis and Charlie White's 2010 Olympic smash hit and silver medal performance. They actually are another uh, figure skating duo from the United States, but they did that routine with the choreographer from Bollywood. And I watched that performance and it was riveting. Their costumery was beautiful. Like you could tell they put such an effort into studying something so authentic. So I'm not out here saying, oh, it shouldn't be done. It should be done the right way. And I think Meryl Davis and Charlie White's performance is an example of that. I do want to burn Madison Chalk and Evan Bates' performance because I couldn't even watch all of it because it was such a gong show. So I want to take, it can be, it doesn't have to be appropriative. It can be appreciative. So I want to burn Mm. that appropriation. Burn. Burn. Oh, I love that distinction. I am throwing back USA Gymnastics onto the burn pile. Louise Radnofsky, a great reporter at the Wall Street Journal, reported this week that back in 2015, when USA Gymnastics was investigating Larry Nasser and had alerted the FBI to the fact that there, there were allegations of abuse against him, nobody told Simone Biles, even though USA Gymnastics knew that she was one of the athletes that had complained about Nasser. Nobody told Simone. Nobody talked to her. 
They let her just continue being the face of USA Gymnastics, being the superstar. They continued to trot her off to marketing appearance after marketing appearance after marketing appearance. And nobody checked in with her to make sure she was okay. In fact, nobody from USA Gymnastics checked in on Simone until she tweeted in 2018 that she was abused. It took that long. Simone had, after this was revealed this week in the Wall Street Journal, Simone had some pretty heartbreaking tweets. I mean, she, this is incredibly difficult to deal with. And she said, seems to me it wasn't just USA Gymnastics, but also the USOC and FBI. Why did everyone know but me? And Dominique Mociano also tweeted this week, she vividly remembers how Steve Penny, who was the former USA Gymnastics president, wanted to be Simone Biles' agent. It's just, it's just this corruption knows no bounds. And I'm going to end this burn by quoting another Simone Biles tweet from this week. She says about the Wall Street Journal article, can't tell you how hard this is to read and process. The pain is real and doesn't just go away, especially when new facts are still coming out. What's it going to take for a complete and independent investigation of both the U.S. Olympic Committee and USA Gymnastics? Burn. All right, we have a fabulous lineup for the Badass Women of the Week. I'm going to dive right into the honorable mentions. We have all the winners at the Footy Blacklist in the UK that celebrates Black excellence and African and Caribbean achievement in the sport. Some of the honorees include J.J. Robel, Ikra Ismail, Vivian Ayala, Lungi Masebo, Joni Evans, Anita Asante, Pippa Monique, Vadumo Alo, Danielle Carter, Renee Hector, and so many more. Congratulations. The Hadanoshi Nationals won the Pan-American Lacrosse Association qualifiers and are going to the Lacrosse World Championship in 2021. Jill Ellis the recipient of the Women's Soccer Award of Excellence. She will be honored at the Coaches of Women's Soccer Breakfast in January. Professor Vicki Parashak of the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor is part of a team receiving funding to put together a nine-hour workshop to look at holistic coaching approaches, racism, and community well-being for Indigenous athletes called the Aboriginal Coaching Module It's a workshop through the National Coaching Certification Program that is incredible. I want to say congratulations to all the organizers and participants of Women on Wheels that launched at Sindaleg of the project in Karachi, Pakistan today or over the weekend while you're listening to this. Women on Wheels is a gender equality transportation project that will train 10,000 women to ride motorbikes and reclaim their mobility. Lots of LPGA awards. It was their end of the season tournament this week. Spain's Carlotta Saganda, who won the inaugural Aeon Risk Reward Challenge and the $1 million payday that came with it. Aeon held this challenge for the LPGA and PGA Tour all season long and in a first for golf, offered the same $1 million winner's check to both the men and the women who won. Please, more of that. Jin Young Ko took home 
all the awards. She won Rolex Player of the Year, Rolex Annika Major Award. She later added the Fair Trophy to her tally when she captured the season's lowest scoring average. And she also finished the season number one in the rankings and atop the prize money list. So I would say Co had a pretty great year. Brooke Henderson received the 2019 Founders Award, which is an honor voted on by her peers to give to the player that best exemplifies spirit, ideals, and the values of the LPGA. Suzanne Pedersen, who retired in September after returning from maternity leave to sink the winning pup for Team Europe at the 2019 Solheim Cup, she was named the winner of the 2019 Heather Farr Perseverance Award. We also had Zhengong Lee Six who added to her trophy count when she accepted the 2019 Rolex Louise Suggs Rookie of the Year. And can I have a drum roll, please? Woo! All right. Our Badass Woman of the Week is LPGA player Seung Kim, who is only 26 and won the CME Group Tour Championship with a phenomenal 25-foot birdie on the 18th hole to win this year in event and to take home a $1.5 million winner's check, which is the largest payday in the history of women's golf. Everyone, what's good? <laughs> Brenda? Copa Libertadores is good. The club competition from South America ended yesterday Woo. with Flamengo beating River Plate. Um, so Flamengo from Brazil and River Plate <laughs> from Argentina. And it was crazy. River had the game. It was 1-0 the entire time. I think the 89th minute, Gavi Gol scores. And then in the 93rd, extra time scores again. And it was so exciting and so, so very, very South American. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, it was one of those things where I'm like, this is done. This is done. This is done. Wow. Like this was, I can't believe like this is how it's going down. And then it's like, nope, nope, no, it's not. And I love Gabby Goal and I'm so happy for him and for Flamengo who hasn't won a club championship and you know for the Libertadores since I think 1981 and last year because of the violence between Boca and River it had to be held in Europe so championship named for the independence leaders of Latin America went to Spain (laughs) which uh, was not cool and this year it was in Lima and it was fantastic so that was very very good for me yesterday. Wow I love that. Shereen? I had a really awesome experience yesterday. I was at the Regent Park Film Festival here in Toronto uh, doing a screening of Life Without Basketball, Bilkis Abdul-Qadir's documentary that came out about her challenging the hijab ban. Um, I have a small cameo in the film, and that's always fun to see. It's an incredibly emotional you know, documentary because it chronicles her life and the years that it took to overturn a ban. I also did a Q&A afterwards, which is really fun because it's always really good and we have a really great connection and to vibe off of each other is was wonderful. And one of the nicest things happened when I was being introduced, a young Somali Canadian man who was introducing the pan, like, you know, our segment said, you know, I'm really excited to have Shereen Ahmed moderating. And in my opinion, she's one of the 
she's the best Canadian, she's the best sports writer in Canada. And she's the only reason why sports is bearable these days on Twitter. And I was completely stunned. And I was like, I I was in the audience. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) but it just was, it was, it was a really beautiful space. It's a really incredible community, Regent Park and this film festival is wonderful. So congratulations to Camille and everybody else, because this is a really important, it's accessible. They had an ASL translator there during the segment and there was subtitles in the movie. They, it was, the tickets are free. You just have to register. It's just, it's just a wonderful film festival. And if you're in Toronto, you really should check it out. And the next thing that I'm super excited about is actually Princeton for a conference. I mentioned that, and it's a soccer conference. I will see uh, Dr. Elsie there <laughs> and hang out with Megan Steph and the whole Dubois will be there. Peter Oleggi, two of our faves. It'll be, be a good time. Um, really interesting discussions happening. So that'll be wonderful. And that's it. My daughter's team went to OPSA, which are the provincial finals in basketball. They did not win, but they had an amazing season and I'm so proud of them. And, you know, go Loyola Warriors. A lot of the team is seniors. So it was quite an emotional, an emotional uh, tournament. So that's about it. Wow. I love that you have so many things. I have so it many things. Me, it makes me my heart warm. <laughs> For me, as I mentioned up top, I had two Friendsgivings yesterday, which just made me feel full of love for DC and this community I have built here that has gotten me through some tough times uh, this year, let's be honest. And yeah, I think I'm just going to stick with that today. I'm just feeling uh, grateful for my my community and excited about about what's next and of course always the most grateful for my burn it all down community of my co-hosts and our phenomenal listeners um we couldn't do this without you and every single time i get an email or see someone in person that says they listen to the show i just i immediately feel like we must be friends (laughs) like (laughs) you know i just feel like we we've got such a phenomenal group here and so um if you want to be an even deeper part of that group if you really love us and want to support us and make sure that this can happen every week, go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. And there for as little as $2 a month. I mean, it's not much. It's it's a, you know, we want it to be affordable for everyone. So for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to an extra segment each month. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to a behind the scenes video each month, um, which I believe we're about all caught up on (laughs) now, and um, a chance to win some swag. And we love our Patreon community and are so grateful for that. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod, uh, Facebook, Burn It All Down, and the on our website you can find all of this information at burnitalldownpod.com i think that's about it oh also grateful in advance for people leaving reviews that is a free way you can help us if you go to itunes and just leave us a five star review and tell us say why you love the podcast that helps get us to find new listeners so i hope that if you're in the states that you have Find a fun way to celebrate this holiday and take some time. And we love you. Brenda, what do we say? Keep burning on, but not out.